Fully Loaded Chew is tobacco-free, long-cut, and pouches that gives you the same pack, dip, spit, and buzz that you're used to without tobacco. Fully Loaded Chew comes in nine flavors and is made with all food-grade ingredients and tobacco-free nicotine, the purest form of nicotine there is. To give us a try, head on over to FullyLoadedChew.com for a $1 can of chew with free shipping when you enter the code OUTDOOR1. O-U-T-D-O-O-R and the number one. Lastly, many outdoorsmen are trying to quit tobacco altogether and fully loaded chew may be that first step. For more information on our product line, visit FullyLoadedChew.com. This is the Houndsman XP Podcast. Good dog, get that bear. Get that bear in here. The original podcast for the complete Houndsman. The podcast that represents our lifestyle of extreme performance. Get up there! Yeah! 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 Good boy! Good boy, Ranger! Uniting houndsmen across the globe from east to west, north to south. You know, if you're going to catch a cat or a lion, you know, you have to have teamwork. We take you to the wildest places on earth. Yeah, so how many days how many days a week can you spend out As much as I can to be honest with you. Anytime that I get I'm I'm out there. Join us for every heart pounding adventure on Houndsman XP. I'll tell you like I tell everyone else, I'm gonna hunt whether you're here or not, so you might as well be here. <laughs> Hey everybody, I want to welcome you to the Houndsman XP Podcast. This is our Thursday edition that we call The Truth About Coon Hunting or otherwise known as The Truth. It's normally hosted by Josh McKellis under the Houndsman XP Podcast brand and Josh is doing a super job with this and I just wanted to reach out there and tell all of you Thank you for the support that you've shown, Josh, uh, the, the support that you've shown Houndsman XP. Houndsman XP will strive every week to bring you the highest quality guests that we can find. And one thing about in this particular episode of The Truth, I sit down with Jerry Mall. Jerry is getting ready to retire from PKC. And um, we're just going to recap his career. We're going to talk about things he's seen in, in the sport of competition coon hunting. Not only since he's been a professional with two different registries, but also since he started in the early 80s and, and talk about coon hunting. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Jerry's always a straightforward guy. And I can't think of a better guest we could have to feature on the truth. So, 
if you just started listening to the podcast and because of this segment, we appreciate you. But I also want to tell you that, that you can help support this segment of the podcast by going to our website at www.houndsmanxp and you can click the support button and it will take you into a Patreon page where you can uh, support this show and keep us on the road, bringing you this kind of entertainment and give you something to listen to when you're running up and down the road with those hounds competing at the highest levels and, you know, trying to bring home the big money and, and you guys are burning it up out there. Hope we can keep you awake on the road, but guys, we're going to dive right into it with the truth and Jerry Mall. Southern Hound Hunting Magazine is the most comprehensive magazine that represents your lifestyle as a houndsman. If you can hunt it with a hound, it is being covered in the pages of Southern Hound Hunting Magazine. You also get an in-depth look at the men and women who are engaged in this lifestyle, living it every day to the fullest. From the Rocky Mountains to the Southern Swamps and across the ocean with articles about our international houndsmen and what they're chasing across the pond. Go to southernhoundhunting.com, get your subscription for $15 a year. Southern Hound Hunting Magazine, promoting the fair chase experience. Houndsman XP Nation, I'm excited to be sitting down with uh, a guy that uh, we've got a long history together, and uh, my buddy Jerry Mall. On yep. the podcast again. Glad to be here again. You know, your your the podcast you did with us is still one of our highest rated podcasts. I did not know that. Yeah, yeah, it is. It might be because it's one of the oldest, and people just listen to it, have a chance <laughs> to listen to it a lot. That could be. <laughs> no, no, it was good. But Jerry, uh, the reason I wanted to talk to you to get things started, you know, just for the podcast is, uh, or for this episode is. You recently announced that you're retiring from PKC. Yes, it was uh, it was a big, ch- big change and uh, a hard decision to come to. It uh, there was a lot of soul searching for me and my wife Brenda, and we, you know, talked about it a lot over the last year, year and a half. And uh, I think what took us over the edge was my my surprise heart incident that started early in the year and ended with uh, my surgery in March and and recovery following that. And it was just one of those things that uh, we decided it was time. Yeah. Well, you look great. Thanks. Yeah. yeah it looked like you've even shed a few pounds. I have a couple. Time. And, and uh, actually, after my surgery, I lost more than that, but I found most of them. <laughs> <laughs> and what you didn't find, I found for you. Yeah, no doubt. But we go back a long way, Jerry, and I mean, uh, we've done all kinds of stuff together as far as for the for the benefit of this lifestyle of being a houndsman. You know, I, I still look at the the photos opportunity that we took out here that night with mm-hmm. with your kids and you, and and uh, we displayed those photos on on uh, on displays at major events and shows all across 
Indiana for for the DNR, the Department of Natural Resources here in Indiana, and and trying to build that relationship between, especially the the game warden and the coon hunters. And uh, I think it I think it was a good thing that we did that. And then our work with the Hoosier Tree Dog Alliance together, founding that organization and and different things. But uh, so I'm happy for you. I really am. I'm happy that you uh, you're ready to to start this this new chapter in life yeah I'm, I'm excited about it and uh and it's it's something that um you know just since the labor day classic a couple of weeks ago things have been settling down a little bit already and i've been i've been working in the background helping shane Patton get started in the in his new role as director of field operations for pkc and and the demands and the stress uh, those levels have already started to to pare down a little bit, so it's it's a uh, it's a welcome feeling. I noticed that your new voicemail uh, message on there say, "If you have a PKC question, don't bother me." <laughs> no, it says uh, it says call Roger Dale or Shane Patton. <laughs> right? Yeah, I probably won't get to the extent of saying putting on there. Uh, this is Jerry. I'm retired. Don't call me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be a bit. <laughs> yeah so tell us what the uh tell us what the future is for pkc to fill that position as you know as you know it well um first off i, th I think in in hiring and selecting shane Patton for the role i don't i don't think as far as the, the folks out there that would be available for such a role uh like i told roger i don't think he could have picked anyone better than Shane Patton uh he's young energetic and he's been involved in the um in the both the fall and the spring super stakes the world championship and the national championship for several years uh helping uh he's he's judged uh all of our major event finals whether that be a world hunt or truck hunt uh national super stakes i mean he's he's been in the thick of it so he knows he knows a lot from the handling and judging standpoint and how the hunts work and he knows a good bit from the administration side just being just working with us for the last several years at those big events um he's he's a friendly guy a lot friendlier than i am um <laughs> and uh very likable um doesn't know a stranger, so I, I think he's going to be an extremely good fit. How much of that job is public relation type work? Um, it it is public relation a, a good bit uh, as far as dealing with members or customers, however you want to term them, uh, on a daily and nightly basis. As far as outside the membership with public relations, um mostly working with cities and towns as far as venues and stuff like that is is the, most of the extent of the public relations mm -hmm. beyond that um but uh the uh, sometimes you you turn into more of a an arbitrator or a, a policeman rather than a rather than a customer service type person and sometimes that doesn't go over well, depending on which side of the answer you're on. <laughs> if, if you get the answer you like, then uh, 
then Jerry's a pretty good guy, and if you don't, then he's not such a good guy. Well, I think uh, it, the thing I've always admired about you is the fact that anytime there was a question uh, or a, a decision to be made, you always referred to what the rule said. It wasn't how you felt about it. It's not whether you liked it or not. It wasn't, you know, and that's was that stands true from everything when we used to work on legislative issues with the Hoosier Tree Dog Alliance. I've seen you do that, you know, behind the as a hunt director at the director's desk or wherever it is or in your role. But uh, you've always been that guy. It's like, guys, this is what the rule says. Yeah, and I, and I've taken some criticism for that. Uh, I mean. Before my time at PKC, uh, a lot of those questions, well, I should say all those questions were tended to be answered off the cuff. And and some of the complaints or criticisms that we, we heard were that depending on who you ask, you might get a different answer. Mm -hmm. So the one thing I started do, to do immediately um, was if there was questions on the PKC board or Facebook, either one, I would try to answer the question and then quote the rule. Or if, if the, if the rule itself answered the question completely, then I would just post the rule. And, you know, I've, I've had people comment, you know, why don't you just tell us the answer instead of posting <coughs> the rule? And, you know, my answer to that is, well, I really want you to read the rule. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. What's your What's your tagline that, to be prepared? Uh, hunt your dog, read the blue book, and your good book. That's right. <laughs> That's right. I always loved that. Well, you know, as you work for two different registries. Yes. And give us just give us a rundown for the listeners that might know who might not know who Jerry Mall is. Okay. Well, well the the uh, I guess the first my first step in getting getting more involved in the in the back end of the of the of competition coon hunting was um in the in the 90s i spent i don't really recall the the time frame but maybe a year or two as a director at large with the tree walker association mm -hmm. of ukc the twbfa and um we're talking back in the 1900s right 90s yeah <laughs> <laughs> um so it's been a while ago believe it or not and uh so i did that for a while and uh and then i got more in you know in the late eight late 80s to in early 90s i probably got more involved in pkc hunting than i did in ukc and i kind of gravitated away from ukc and um as I was becoming more involved in the PKC hunts, the owner at that time, Larry Meeks, uh, asked me if I would run for Walker Breed president. And um, so I did, and I eventually won. And then once I won that, he asked me to join the executive uh, board as a as a consulting member or, or whatever you want to call that, you know, to, to tackle issues that – that PKC wanted to put in front of a group, and that was a group of five national directors that they called the executive board. And so I sat on that on that until um, probably from early 2000 to November 2004 is when Steve Fielder asked me to join him at the AKC. Um, 
And so I started working for Steve at that time, um, kind of unofficially in November of 2004 and December, but I actually became a paid employee at, at AKC first of the year in 2005. And I worked uh, with Steve there uh, from then through September of 2010. And, and that's when I started working, went to uh, PKC work for Roger Dale. Um, my roles were similar at both places. Uh, the main difference was at, at AKC, it was, it was kind of a restart. AKC had a Coonhound program. Uh, of course, they purchased uh, ACHA initially way, way back, and, and their, their Coonhound program was kind of faltering, and that's why they hired Steve to come on and, and revitalize it. And so even though there was a program there, we were in many ways starting anew. We started with a new set of rules, Mm -hmm. new set of policies and and uh, a new a new way to tackle the the animal and um so when i went came back to pkc of course it was everything was already solid and steady and and set up and ready to go so that was one big difference uh probably my biggest surprise to to taking on the director of field operations job at pkc is how administrative the job is uh, meaning that uh, a tremendous amount of the job is just doing computer work and, you know, managing uh, from an administrative standpoint just details. And um, and then the rest of it involves, like you started talking about, the, the customer relations part of right, it. Right, right. So um – and that's I said public relations, but you're right. It was customer relations. You yeah. know, big difference there when yeah. you when you start thinking about that. But so, how much um, PKC employees are allowed to to compete in PKC events? How many PKC events have you hunted in? Well, since I, you and, started working there, and uh, I was I was telling some some guys the other day when we were talking about the same subject that you would think that working for PKC or working for any registry would be an ideal situation to get to hunt a lot and spend time talking about dogs and, you know, hunting the events and so on and so forth. Well, when, when I first started working for PKC, I did hunt in the events uh, on a limited basis. And um, I quickly found out that, that um, at number one, I didn't have time to get my dog ready properly. And so number two, I wasn't ready to go to the event. Mm -hmm. even, even though I was there and competing, I wasn't ready. And uh, probably nothing more disappointing to me than that. And I think I, I think I even hunted with you a couple times during that time. And I was disgusted because my dog wasn't performing for the obvious reason that I hadn't been hunting her. Yeah. And um, so you become th that part of the, the, the realization comes pretty quickly that you can't do both. And then the, the second part of that is that after you work with, with registry and rule and regulation issues all day long and talk about them, them all day long with, with hunters and all day and night, I should say, um, you really don't want to go to an, an event and talk about the same thing. Right. Uh, now that doesn't keep you from going out in the woods and, 
and spending time out there on your own alone with the dog and that's that's the kind of things that I enjoyed and the only time I really had time to do that was you know during coon season when everything kind of settled down after and the world after the super stakes and the world hunt and all that stuff sure that's the only time I I could ever get you yeah you know to get out and and go hunting is when you had that much time but yeah. you know you you competed at a at a high level for you know through the 90s and that's what got you that recognition to be you know talk about a couple of those the the tell us a 5 minutes you know recap salt creek salt creek kennels tell us about two of your your favorite dogs and what you did with them well it it'd be hard to to nail down just a couple of favorite but but some of my favorites uh was would have been the female that I competed in my very first PKC hunt with, and that was a dog I called Salt Creek Ann too. Um, I went to Dupont, Indiana, and in I think 1988 or 89, and entered my first PKC hunt, and um, and got in that night and split, and I can't remember what the exact amount of money was, but I got like 140 dollars, and I thought that was just awesome compared to going you know, to UKC hunt and getting a plaque. But, uh, right. uh, so that, that was, and too was, was in my mind, an exceptional dog. She didn't, did never receive the recognition. I think she was capable of just because I didn't, didn't put her where she needed to be. At that time I was working full time and going to school about three, four nights a week. So I didn't get a lot of hunting on her. And the fact that she won what she won was probably in spite of me instead of because of me. Um, she placed in a little world hunt, the a a I believe it was ACHA then, and um, she won the Lee Crawford event at Walker Days, and she placed the 11th in the UKC World Hunt, and and a few other things. So she was she was definitely one of my favorites. And then fast forward into the 90s. Um, I had a dog named uh, Molly Ann. She was out of, went back to my old Annie dog on the bottom and out of Nailer. And she was, uh, she was an exceptional dog. Um, I never, I did really didn't win any major events with her, although she did compete in them and, and made a showing. But, but she was the mother of my Jenny female. And, and as far as a competition dog, she was, she was the the one I had the most success with. I wouldn't say she was necessarily my favorite dog, but she was definitely in the top four. Yeah. Um, and she was uh, she was just in a class all her own. And uh, when I got when I lost my job due to downsizing uh, at a corporation uh, in Indianapolis in early in the early two thousands, I sold her to John Strickland, and he he had some good success with her as well. Mm hmm. Yeah. So, uh, what are your lifetime earnings in PKC? We're asking all the guests on the truth, truth side of it. I'm thinking somewhere around. Don't look mine up. It'll be embarrassing. I'd have to look to be <laughs> honest with you. I've not, uh, I should check recently. I should have. I can tell you this. It hasn't changed much in the last 10 years. Uh, <laughs> 
While Jerry's looking that up, we're going to kick it over to Dakota 283 and tell you about some pretty cool products that they have over there. Dakota 283 offers you unparalleled protection for your hounds. We're talking about military-grade kennel crates. Uh, I got got one of these two-door kennel crates here at the house. It is super heavy-duty. It's got slap latches on it that are stainless steel. Easily fits in the back of an SUV or if you're traveling with a camper shell. It's a great way to keep your dog protected while you are traveling. You just got to check out their Dash Series. This is a watering system. And I've used a lot of these portable waterers over the years. But this system is all integrated into one unit and the way it's designed out of high impact plastic the water stays in the tank when you're not using it because you can put a plug in it check them out uh, the 3.5 is also compact enough that i can store it behind the seat of my pickup truck while i'm out hunting when it's super cold i've had exterior tanks before and as soon as i go to cold climates then i've got to figure out how i'm going to get water to my hounds and the dash takes care of that so check out dakota 283 at dakota283.com and at checkout enter the code hxp10 and get 10 percent off of your order this portion of the houndsman xp podcast is brought to you by tier one custom calls when it's all on the line make the choice the pros do choose tier one well I'll have to think about that and look at it for a minute. Yeah, just uh, just give it. We can come back to that, but you know the thing that that um, I've observed, Jerry, is you've always been a guy that's been successful, whether it was with PKC or it was with with your hounds or you know things like that. And and I I don't know of a guy that is a harder working guy than than you are. I've always I mean, anybody that that I ever talk to, you go to any event, you go if if you're if you're getting a dog ready, you know that's how we met. Is you which dog was that, Molly Ann? That was Molly Ann. Yeah, that's how we met. As you were in the field getting a dog ready for the hunt, when everybody else was, I couldn't find anybody else out hunting. Um, just driving down the road, and there you are. So we had that, and but it, it, the Hoosier Tree Dog Alliance, all that stuff. I mean, that comes from that German heritage background, you know, that people always talk about, about the hard, hard work and ethic. And, and that's what made you successful. Yeah. And I, I have to attribute that to my upbringing. Uh, my dad's theory on coon hunting is, is that's for lazy people that don't want to work. <laughs> and so <laughs> I, it, you would say I would have had a big job winning him over about convincing, convincing him it was okay to coon hunt, but I never did win that argument. <laughs> I wonder how much my, my dad was the same way. And I wonder how much that affected, uh, cause there's times when, when I'm hunting that I feel guilty that I'm not working, but then I realize that there's people that actually work doing this, mm -hmm. you know, and it's like a, a cat or a dog chasing his tail in my brain sometimes trying to, trying to sort all that out. I understand that. Uh, I, you know, when I, when I was working in, in my career differently than, uh, than coon hunting. Um, the way I kind of rationalized that was, you know, I would, I would get everything done when I got home from work that I needed to do, um, at home. And then when the kids went to bed, uh, 
then I'd go hunting and still try to get up five o'clock in the morning and did that for several years. And mm-hmm. I, looking back, I don't know how I did that, but I did. Could you do it now? No, <laughs> no, no. But I did look, and my my lifetime earnings are um, twenty nine thousand seven hundred ninety one. Yeah, yeah. But none of that in the last eleven years or yeah. so. Yeah, yeah. We just ask everybody, but I mean that's a chunk of change to make off of coon hunting. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, so coon hunting's been good to me. Uh, you know, a lot of people say jokingly and and sometime in all seriousness say uh you know if you if you think you're going to make a living at coon hunting or if you think you're going to make money at coon hunting you should do something else but i would have to say from the time i got my first dog i think when i was 15 or so until today um i'm very much in the black mm-hmm. i've i've made a lot more money coon hunt with coon dogs um started out selling coon hides and sold right. sold puppies and won money in hunts. If if you add all that together plus what I spent, I'm still in the black. Well would you have even been able to be qualified for your professional life for the last seventeen years if you hadn't been coon hunting. So right, yeah. You take yeah. all those those you know that have put a roof over your head and yeah. fed your family too. Yeah the coon hunters and registries have, have uh have helped my me and my family uh you know carry out our normal life for 17 years and and that's you know that's a pretty important thing i agree i agree so all right you've been in the business for 17 years what are what's what's some some of the most significant changes uh you've seen in competition coon hunting from let's even take it back to when you entered that first event back in the 80s to where it's at today well, if I would say what's the biggest difference between going to a, a competition coon hunting in the 80s uh, versus today, um, I guess you could look at, at it from two aspects. One is the dogs and the other is everything else. Yeah. And from the dogs, the the biggest change that I see is the style of dogs. Um when when I started being successful in coon hunts and and I should say somewhat successful when I when I entered my first coon hunt and I think it was 1982 somewhere around there um, of course I didn't know have any idea what I was doing and by the time that I figured out what I was doing and started actually winning was probably in the late 80s and um, the biggest difference was I found out pretty quick that pretty much all the dogs hunted together, struck together, treed together. And it was a calling contest most of the time about who was going to get struck first, and who was going to get treed first. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're pretty, it's pretty wide open with the strike. You can kind of get by with making a mistake there. But if you make a mistake on that tree call, then it's, you, you may cost you to lose the cast just on one, one calling contest on one tree may cause you to lose the cast or, right. or win the cast. And and I didn't really like that. And so the one thing that I, I felt like I had an advantage at is is the dogs that I was raising at that time, starting with my original Annie female, were naturally independent. 
and um, they just really didn't care to tree with other dogs if if they were on the same track and they treed first or the other dog treed first. It really didn't matter. They would, I mean, they would be there. But if they had an opportunity to get away from the other dogs at any point, or if there was more than one coon that they were running or in the area, they would be separate. And that was a huge advantage at that time. Um, and, you know, the, I, I could maybe hunt in six or eight competition casts in a row, and I might have the only independent dog in any of those. The, the difference nowadays is that every one of them are going to be like that. Right, right. <clears throat> so do you think that when you first started hunting the end female on those hunts, the the rest of the dogs in the cast, I can I can think of a, a million ways that um, you know, a dog could get split off. Maybe two out of the dogs aren't hunting over 50 yards from you or 100 yards from you. Uh, you know, maybe somebody – back in those days, it wasn't unusual to, to draw guys – uh, in a cast that would tell you, tell you that my dog would check back in. Mm -hmm. Uh, it wasn't unusual to say my dog will meet me off. He'll meet us off the tree. You know, that was the old standard rule. Oh yeah. Just about every cast <clears throat> to cover their, cover themselves from getting those. My dog might meet us off the tree. Now you never hear that in a cast. Right. It's, you never hear that. It's like, Man, we're going to gut ourselves walking a mile through there, and he's going to be on the wood when we're when we get there. Right. I mean, that's right. it. So, yeah, I see a big difference in the types of dogs. Sure. And you know, I would say that's the biggest difference in the in competing with the dogs themselves um, is the how wild the hunters are nowadays, and how every dog is independent. It's pretty odd to handle more than one dog on a tree, unless you know, they tree a coon right out of the truck or something. Yeah. Um, but the biggest dif difference overall, I would say, is the technology. You know, I first started in the hunts. You were you were pretty well stuck with uh, if you lost your dog, that you either went out and looked for it or you threw your coat down and came back the next day. Right. Um, but, you know, in the, by the mid-'80s, I had one of the, the Johnsons uh, systems and then later on some wildlife systems of the – telemetry trackers and you know and that kind of gradually went on i realize there's been a lot of of uh change in technology and lights <clears throat> but i don't to me i don't really consider that to be such a huge change because everybody's carrying pretty much the same thing right you know it started out uh you know you had a wheat light or a hot light that they called it uh, a wheat light battery and a or a wheat light head and a, a gel cell battery. But thing is pretty well, everybody had the same thing. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so that, although those have changed, it's pretty well stayed level as far as what everybody had nowadays, some people got thermals, some don't, um, you know, the, sometimes those help. Sometimes they get in situations where it's so hot, they don't really help a lot. Uh, but, as far as technology, probably the number one thing is the ability to to have that handheld Garmin or what whatever brand you're using and see where your dog is at all times. And it's just amazing to me that that, that is the situation now versus so many years ago that if your dog wasn't barking, you had no clue where it was. Right. And now you know exactly where it is. Not only distance, <coughs> but you can look at your 
map and see if he's in a woods on a creek in a field by a house. Yeah, that's a, whole, <laughs> that's a whole – that's a whole – we need to do a podcast on uh, winning strategies about how to use that garment and keep yourself in a position to win. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, okay, so going back to the the dogs that you started hunting, do you think they could compete today? Could compete today? Um, do they possess that style to do that? I, I, think, um, I think the best ones, you know, the best ones I had could. Um, I know I'm asking you the dead or the better question, yeah. but, but do you think the style of those dogs? Well, I, I would answer that this way. The, the Jenny female that I had is very stereotypical of what's winning nowadays. Mm -hmm. She was wild. She was by herself. She would run the edge of, of fields instead of going in the woods and she would ambush coons. And, um, and I'd say she would compete on any level nowadays with, with what's out there, uh, by doing the same thing they're doing, just doing it also, and maybe sometimes doing it better. Uh, but the and two female that I was talking about, I think would compete nowadays for a different reason. Uh, she wasn't what I would call extremely wild hunter. Uh, she wasn't what I'd call fiercely independent, although, you know, if she struck a track and the other dogs went the other way, she would treat hers. If if there was more than one coon, she tried to be by herself. But she's the type of dog that could tree a layup coon. She could trail up an old coon. She could she could run a hot coon. And she would, you know, she'd look for a coon as soon as you turned her loose. So mm -hmm. she, could, she could possibly tree some coons on the way to some of those other dogs. And I, I think... In my opinion, I think the smart some of the smart hunters, handlers, are going to realize in the near future here what advantage there would be or can be to having a dog that trees coons close to you. And um, and you know I could be dead wrong about this, but I see that coming somewhat full circle. I mean, there's always going to be guys that enjoy the the wild type of dogs or that's being promoted now. I mean, I'm not saying they're going away. What I'm saying is that some guys are going to figure out they can beat those kind of dogs with a different style of dog. Do you think, uh, do you think the way hunting is going, especially here in the Midwest, Indiana's a hotbed for coon hunting, no doubt. Uh, but it's also one of the lowest we, we hold the least amount of public land. I think we're like number 47 out of 50 states on the amount of public land. So that means this is all privately controlled land. The old farms that you and I used to hunt that nobody cared if we hunted there, uh, they've either been sold and broken up into parcels or they've changed hands or they're under a lease or something like that. And I see all of that kind of stuff uh, ultimately affecting the future of the style of hound that we hunt. Yeah, and I was just telling some guys the other day, well, during the Labor Day Classic, they asked me if I had a place they could guide a cast. And I said, I'll be honest with you. Ten years ago, I had probably 15 to 18 places I could guide a two-hour cast and feel real comfortable about it. And I probably had another 25 that I could take a one-hour cast mm -hmm. anytime I wanted and not have a problem. I said, right now, 
I've got one place I could probably guide one hour cast. That's it. Yeah. I don't I don't have a place I could take two hour cast. Now part of that's because I haven't really been doing it, so I'm not I haven't been asking a lot of people permission, you know, to be honest about it. But mm-hmm. I'm just saying based on what I used to have versus what right. I have now. Right. Um and I'll give you a real short example that that really that really spells out what you were talking about as far as losing hunting ground to deer hunting and cut up uh farms and this and that since my surgery i've been walking every morning and every evening and i i've got a little walker pup that i take with me and once in a while i'll take my squirrel dog well two days ago i took my morning walk and i just on my own property here and the squirrel dog skipped off there and went across property line probably 40 yards mm-hmm. to treat a squirrel. I walked over there, looked up, seen the squirrel, said, good boy, put a lead on him, walked back, came back to the house, put the dogs away. I was getting ready to put a bale of hay out for the cows, and here comes a truck flying in the driveway, 90 mile an hour, and guy all mad because I showed up on his uh, automatic uh, cellular phone game camera. So there you go. <laughs> cellular phone game camera. It beeped on his phone that somebody, that something was in front of his camera and he looked and it was me. Mm-hmm. And he was madder than a hornet that I was over there on his property. And he wondered why I didn't call him. And it, it took me two minutes to walk over there and get that dog and come back. And had I known he would be upset about it, I'd have called him. But mm-hmm. I, logic would tell you he wouldn't be. Uh, right. I didn't even have a gun with me. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, yeah. that that kind of a prime example of what you're talking about. Yeah, and and we're going to have to figure out a way to deal with that in some form, shape, or fashion. You know, because cellular phones, they're not even running. I know people that aren't even actually running the game camera now. They're putting home security camera type stuff that's weatherproof because they're they're cheaper than mm-hmm. than your game camera. And I don't know how these guys get any sleep because those cameras are going off and I've gotten phone calls. It's like, hey, are you on my property? It's like, yeah, I'm on your property. You know, but what are you doing? Sitting around looking at that thing 24-7, you know? Yeah, I think they got an alert that pops up on their phone and they're yeah. all yeah. excited because they're going to look at it and see a big deer. Right. And here's Chris Powell and boy, they're disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they should be. They should be. Um, so... A lot of changes. So some of, some of the things that, that I wanted to talk about, Jerry, was, um, you know, you're getting ready re- getting ready to, to retire and hang it up. And uh, I want to talk about some of the successful pro- programs that, that you've been a part of and, and things that you think are, are good news on the horizon for uh, of, of hunters, too. You know, some things that may not have – take them full hold yet but but you've kind of got the back scenes story and some of the intent of why some of those programs were put in place but they they just hasn't developed yet or hadn't shown itself so uh you can kind of give us give us the backstory on some of that and some of the intent and what the vision was with some of those programs maybe well the i guess starting with the things at, at akc uh, like I said, we pretty well, we started 
when when we got started, we looked at their old rules, and we started trying to figure out how we we're gonna fix them or change them or what. And I think at some point in that mix, we said, let's just pretty much scrap them. Yeah, let's burn them. And <laughs> and so we started over, and so with with working with the the with hunting in UKC for years and hunting in PKC for years, of course, I had a lot of ideas about you know how things could be better now whether whether i was right or not we all do is a a whole different thing but but it it gave me an opportunity to lay them out on the table and um ended up in the rules and some of them didn't but but uh and i i think i think that was satisfying that that program was taking off with with something new like that and um but granted, you know, there's new registries popping up every year, mm-hmm. and and they're not reinventing the wheel. I mean, they're starting out with, you know, the basic rules that we've all hunted against our whole lives. Right. Sure, there's a few changes, but but you know, since the '50s, we all been kind of hunting under the same rules. We've just tweaked them and developed them, and, right? You know, right. the same way we have our hounds. You know, sure, yeah, and so. I'm I'm not trying to say anything was revolutionary. It was more evolutionary. <laughs> right. And uh and so I in, until we got we got whacked with all that pause stuff and it really really hurt the AKC program. I you know, we were getting a pretty good head of steam. So so that was satisfying at the time. And and probably with PKC what what I feel like I've been able to do is to um not necessarily change the rules, but to rewrite some that that were easier to understand and easier to implement and easier to enforce. And um, you know, over the years, and as far as the rules themselves, I, I hope that I was have been more of an educator. You know, over the last ten years, eleven years, to to people that we're used to going to hunts and whatever the other guys said on the cast, then that's what they took is how the rules were. Mm -hmm. And what my main emphasis was maybe, maybe not read the rule yourself. Try to try to, to match it up with what's actually going on in the woods and, and keep it in your mind that way instead of paying attention to what a lot of people say. Cause some, believe it or not, sometimes we'll, people will say whatever they need to say to their advantage. Really? Yep. <laughs> people will do that. Sounds a lot like being a game warden to some extent. You know, you go down to the local coffee shop or the local, you know, uh, sporting goods store, and everybody in there has got an interpretation of what the actual uh, hunting rules are, and then they run into me, and the first thing, well, we were talking down the other the other day down at so-and-so, and – and they said this. Well, that's not what the law says. So I was very much the same way. Let's look at the law. I mean, you can even take the daggone hunting guide in the state of Indiana and misinterpret that thing. So I always referred people to the law, not a editorialized sure. version that's written for uh, general general information. I'd show people the law. You know, yeah. same way same way with you. And and you know, there's some of them that are very basic and and the one that is one rule is constantly misunderstood and it's 
due to two things, I believe. One is that other registries are different. Number two, uh, people believe what they hear instead of what they read, and that is a tie-breaking rule. And the reason I say it's it's probably the easiest rule is just because when you read it, it's black and white. Step one, two, three, four, five. Mm-hmm. You know, if 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 you read the scorecard and what everybody has, and you compare it to that rule, you know, there's there's no room for error. Right. But yet, you know, still get two or three calls a week about, hey, I thought I won this cast. They said I didn't win this cast. You know, hmm. so I mean, it, it's just. It's just something that I don't know if it's human nature. It might be men because we don't read directions. But uh, <laughs> there's something about people not wanting to read those rules. I, mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not smart enough to know exactly all the reasons, but but it but they have reasons. <laughs> well, I mean, it's like uh, you could you could show somebody a book that gives them. Uh, factual information that's that's backed up by you know footnotes and all kinds of things and it's all put in the back and hand that book to somebody about you know what coon dog to breed to or the and and they won't read that they'll go on facebook and ask 25 other people what dog do you think i should breed to well i just gave you a book why are you asking the question i just i just gave you the book it's all there it's going to give you the answer i don't know either i don't get it i think some of it's because we're you know, we like discussing and debating with our friends, and mm-hmm. and we're also trying to find our own way. I don't, I don't know. I'm not smart enough either, Jerry. But, yeah. What else you got? Well, I, I, you were asking about new programs, and really there hasn't been that many really new programs. Um, some of the stuff that, that I've been involved in the last 11 years that was kind of new um, um we had started the whole double header idea at, at AKC and, and it already started to be implemented at PKC. I think about the time I started and that's been successful the weekend double header hunts. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that, that I kind of got going and, uh, Bobby Wilson from down at DuPont what kind of pushed me on it to get it, to get, the numbers down and to present it to Roger Dale. And that was taking the $25 hunts to $30 hunts. And the main reason behind that was at that time, the weeknight hunts were drawn better and you might draw five or six casts. Well, mm-hmm. the only people that got paid were the top four cast winners, the other two didn't get anything. So the idea was at least those two cast, other two cast winners would get their money back. And of course, once we started that, the, the $25 hunts just went away. And uh, they get their money. They not only get their money back, but that those earnings go. Those, those are state and breed earnings yeah. as well. Yes. Yeah. So they're not, they're not showing up on a weeknight cast, get there and there's five casts and you don't get in. And it's like, well, nothing for right. me. And I've been to, to many, you know, weeknight hunts where, you know, you win your cast just like everybody else did, but you didn't get anything for it. So, right. so that was kind of a shot in the arm. I think that, the people at first they didn't like the idea of the extra five dollars but once they realized they could get cast win earnings nowadays there's the tar- enough of them that came in fifth and sixth now that they kind of like it yeah <laughs> the, the problem is nowadays the way the way things have gotten you know weeknight hunts aren't drawn many more than than four than forecast so the the value of it's not as well as 
obvious as it used to be. Mm-hmm. But um, the other thing I kind of pushed for was the cast win payouts at the World Hunt and Super Stakes to where you the entry fee was raised, but you were guaranteed if you won at least one cast, you would get your entry fee back. And that, in my opinion, has been a big boost to, to those hunts, uh, allowing people to play a little longer. You know, mm-hmm. if you go there, if you, you know, years ago, if if you went to the world hunt and you you won early and got beat all four nights, you were just out of all that money. Right. Whereas now, at least if you go Monday night and you get beat, then you can enter the next night sort of for free. So mm-hmm. the the expenses aren't so hard on you. Right. If you win your early round, you get beat in the late round, you still got your money entry fee for tomorrow yep. night. That's right. Yep. So as long as you can you can win one your early rounds, so you can keep playing and keep living. Yep. Yep, that's a yeah, I like I always like that. Yeah. And then the the other thing that that I kind of push for with the legacy hunts um and some people like them, some people don't. It's it's one of those things. But the advantages that 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 were the reasons that I pushed for them was because there were so many of these big added purse open events that the the, so much of the awards money went to the top four uh, score, scoring cast winners, high-scoring cast winners, that there was a lot of incentive there to um, to do some things that were not by the book to get those scores higher. Would that mean uh, coercing people into withdrawing, talking them into withdrawing, paying them to withdraw, or helping them in whatever those ways to help you inflate your score. And those were the people that were getting in. So, for example, just say you went to the Spring Classic or Labor Day Classic or Michigan Madness, and you your dog looked as good as it could have. You were excited. You scored 700 points. It's the first time you ever did it. You go back in there, and you don't even get close to getting in the Final Four. And the guys that did get in the final four over in the corner laughing about it, and you get a pretty quick idea what really happened. Mm-hmm. Well, you're probably not going to come back, right? And that hurts the entries, and it hurts hurts the registry, hurts the club, hurts everybody. And with the legacy hunts, uh, it's elimination only. So you win your cash, you advance. It doesn't matter if you've got zero, five hundred minus, or five hundred plus. Mm-hmm. It you advance and and. To me, that's more of a more of a true test or whatever you want to call it to to get the winners of the hunt, and uh, it makes people feel like they they're uh, and and there again, if you win your cast and you and you don't get beat or you don't win the late round, you get your money entry mm-hmm. fee back, and and you can play longer. Right. And all you've got to do is beat the dogs you're in the woods with, not the ones that are in different cast. Yep. Yep. So. Again, there's some people that don't like the legacy hunts. I'm not trying to make it sound like they're the best thing since sliced bread, but um, in my opinion, that you know, they pay the club better, they pay the hunters better, and it's a more fair system. Yeah, I like it. I like it. You got anything else? Uh, that's about it. All right. So looking back over your career, if you could change one thing, about competition coon hunting what would it be if if i could 
wave a magic wand and, and change one thing, regardless of what registry they're hunting in uh, and what they're competing in, would be to get rid of the negativity in the sport. And along with that negativity, um, well, I, I guess they to to kind of encapsulate the negativity that I'm talking about is just say when when Jake was 10 years old and you took him to a hunt, mm -hmm. the things you experience on the grounds at that hunt could there, there's some things you that you would not want to expose your son to. Mm -hmm. And what and and I I call that whole bunch of things negativity, and whether that's vulgarity or cheating or whatever you want, right? Uh, you right. know, putting other people you're down, put, putting yeah. other people's dogs down. I mean, everything you can lump into negativity. You're contributing to a negative environment where you're at, and uh, I mean that's. You know the story. I'm not going to call it out which which event it was or anything like that. But that was the final straw for me for competition coon hunting. Is I was at an event and there were ladies present, and there was no regard for their presence. And I looked around and I thought, "What am I doing here? Spending my money to be here? You know, I would rather spend my money and go." For the money I'm spending right here, I can go travel and hunt with people that I know that share my values and things like that. And and um, that was I think that's the last event that I actually entered. And I've there have been other things when I was raising my kids, Jerry, that I was really involved in. That when it got to that, um, you know, I'd look at look at the people that were there, and it's like I don't want to raise my family in this environment. So, but the negativity, I mean, do you think it outweighs the, the positive things that actually go on or? No, the, the one thing that has always been a puzzle to me, um, is that when you, when a coon hunter is in need, there is no better friends than other coon hunters. Mm-hmm. And you know the best example that I have about that because you were involved in it is when my daughter Bethany was diagnosed with cancer. The the area clubs and individual coon hunters um, came out of the woodwork to help me. Yeah, and even even people from outside this area, you know, states away, would mm -hmm. send stuff to help. Yep, and and. Uh, and that's why I think a lot of the negativity that I'm talking about is just part of the atmosphere that we currently have. And I don't really know how to change that atmosphere. In other words, I'm not saying those people are naturally negative people. Yeah. But but when they get in that environment, that's what happens. Do you think it you think it's because we are so passionate about this thing? And we know what it can be, so it's kind of a disappointment to us that it's going on. And for me, I, th I think you know, as we talk about it, and I talk through it here, it's like, man, this could be such a great thing. This could be a good place for families, and we could do things for veterans and children's hospitals and everything else. But when you show up and you act like that, I don't want—I don't want my kid listening to that. I don't want I, my wife's not going to feel comfortable here. So now I've got to make a, a decision based on 
do I take my kids on vacation or do I go to a competition coon hunt? You know, mm-hmm. and if I could do both, if I could go to a competition coon hunt and make it fun and be the type of environment, that'd be great. And it's not like this everywhere you go, but at the same time, I want it to be that way so bad. So when I see it, then maybe I inflate it of how bad it actually is. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. Because I want it to be great. Yeah. And then I'm like, oh, crap, it's not, you know. Yeah. Well, and, and the other thing that you could get the wrong impression about real quick, and, and that's why I'm glad you brought the other side up or ask me about the whether it's it's really that way or really whether it just looks that way is because many of the people that I see involved in maybe that negativity or vulgarity or whatever I know those people and I know they're really not that much like that Mm -hmm. and if they're not in that environment they're fair in a different environment where I've seen them they're not like that at all exactly I know I've seen it too And so it's hard to describe because that environment perpetuates more. You know, the the one way I guess I've described it over the years is if you work in a construction crew, whether it's it's framing houses or laying brick or, or pouring concrete, whatever, when you first start in there, you may not think so, but within a couple of weeks, you're going to be acting just like they act, whatever, however that is, whether that's good <laughs> or bad. And those kind of groups, it's used to bet. And it's sometimes a, a factory worker could be the same thing. Mm-hmm. And and the example that you gave of being at that hunt with, with women around, I'll bet those guys weren't even thinking about they it. They weren't. Because that's they were in that environment and they were just cutting loose. And, and you, you know, we don't want to keep going on this too far, but I'll say this positively about it. Years ago, we were hunting at a, at a hunt somewhere. It was a big event and there was, you know, some of the same crowd was there and there, you know, you're like, man, you know, I don't like that guy very well. I don't like the way he's acting. And as the cast left, uh, got out on the state road and and there was an accident out on the state road and the police weren't there and these guys that that i had made this judgment about this character judgment about mm-hmm. they were pulled off of the road delaying their own cast and helping the people that needed help so yeah we talk about that sort of stuff but we got to be careful we have to be so careful when we start you know trying to lump in everybody into that i still love going to the events i was at autumn oaks and saw friends and and stuff like that and um so when you look at both sides of that like you said when you're in need man these people will step up the the heart of the coon hunter is knows no bounds right right i agree i agree all right, let's see. Let's see what we got. We got for this one. Advice for hunters who want to be successful in competition. You got a new guy, and he's he's got his dog, and he's been hunting, and he's all pumped up, and he's going to his first event. And if he wants to be the next, you know, Josh McKellis, <laughs> Josh McKellis of the coon hunting world. <laughs> I'll put that in there since Josh isn't with us. So what do you tell him? Well. I- Aside from from getting that dog ready, uh, knowing and understanding the rules um, as an individual, not not trying so hard to take in all this information from other people, 
but to to understand the rules and how how to apply how they're hunting that dog and getting them ready to to compete under those rules i think is a very important thing um i would say to take what they see and hear from other people about how to do that with a grain of salt mm-hmm. uh, because i know Growing up in the sport, I, I had a lot of of um, input from other people, and a lot of it wasn't very good. And and they meant well, but but it it really wasn't helpful. Mm-hmm. In fact, it it was it it took some things the wrong direction. But how did how does a young hunter learn that stuff? How does he how does he get there? And that that I would say the best way to sort that out is when you hear something or see something. You're saying, eh, I'm not sure if that's right. Then that's when you consult your rule book and see if it's right. Mm-hmm. And that way you don't have to go back to them other people and argue with them and tell them they're wrong. You just go about your business and do it the right way. And and there also will be some handlers as you're coming up in the ranks that are going to tell you, you know, in order to to pull the wool over, wool over these guys' eyes and get by with this, you need to do this. And you always got to argue, you know, there, there's people that will tell you, you always have to argue for your dog and stick up for your dog. No, you don't. That's what the rules are for. If, if, you know, if you deserve a minus under the rules and take your minus, if you deserve plus a circle, take that too. You don't have to argue for your dog constantly. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to, to, to make it that way. And if you don't make it that way, you'll enjoy the, competition hunting a lot more Mm -hmm. and if you take the other advice i would give them is that after every competition hunt take note what if what could my dog have done differently to win that cast and what could i have done differently as a handler to win the cast and those are the things you work on Mm -hmm. and if you leave the cast thinking i'm upset i'm mad them guys screwed me out of this, that, this way and that way and whatever, you're not going to get better as a handler and your dog's not going to get better. So if, if you can somehow turn that into, you know, what, what could I have done different or what could my dog have done different and see if you can, you know, get yourself and the dog to do that, then it really, a lot of times it doesn't matter what the other guy does. Um, you know, if your dog trees enough coons, you know, they, they can't do much to you. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what I, that's probably the advice I would give. Yeah. We used to do the same thing in military operations or law enforcement. You have a debriefing after, after it was over and you talk about the things that, that you would do the same things you would change, you know? Yeah. And, well, and I even, I do that when I'm just out hunting, you know, with the yeah. hound, I look at it and I'm like, okay, I need, I, I always evaluate the last, you know, the last tree or the last drop. So, yeah. Yeah. If you get beat and you have to go in there and catch your dog after the hunt while you're leading your dog to the woods, just have a discussion with him about what you two could have done different. I'll tell you, I think the biggest myth about competition hunting, uh, if you get cheated, there's only one person to blame. And that's, th- this is not the myth, but we hear the myth, oh, I got cheated, so I'll never go back. If you got cheated, Nine times out of ten, there's only one person to blame, and it's that person that's looking you b- back in the mirror 
because all the rules are set up to be able to 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 question that you 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 did something within that cast that allowed somebody to take advantage of the situation. There's there's some legitimate yeah. stuff, but but yeah, I'd say for the most part that's true. I mean, there are some ways that you can be cheated that there's nothing you can do about. I agree. And and there's some ways that people can try to cheat you that you can do something about and prevent. Mm-hmm. So I, I would say it, it falls into one of those two categories. If, if you draw out in a four-dog cast with three buddies and they've determined which one of them are going to win before you turn loose and it's not going to be you, um, I mean – there's not a lot you can do. Sure, you can question stuff. You can ask for a cast vote. You can question mm-hmm. it, and you can take it back to the panel. But if they're going to cheat you, they're going to lie in the panel, and you're not – I mean, if you write them up for misconduct, when they send their statement in, they're going to lie. Mm-hmm. If you go back to the panel and tell them what happened, they're going to lie. Mm-hmm. But, but if you have a dog that trees more raccoons than their dog because you're prepared and you did that part of it, they're going to have a harder time. They'll have a harder time. But if they choose, if they get together and they choose, they're not going to see those raccoons. Uh, dog. Yeah. There's not a whole lot you can do. Three blind mice. Right. And I'm don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to paint the picture that that happens more than the other. I would say, by and large, if you get beat and feel like you got cheated, you probably didn't do everything you could do. I would agree with that 100%. I, I guess Is that all the time? No. Just my 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 personal experience. Looking back, you know, I entered my first competition hunt in 1983, and and I can't remember. I can't remember hardly. I I can't recall any specific time that that I didn't look back at the situation and did couldn't find a way that I could have been successful or won that cast. Uh, if Either I needed a better dog, <laughs> I needed to hunt more. I I should have known that rule that that I got manipulated on, or I didn't understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there was always something in there that that I personally could have done to either better my chances or made me successful. I, I would agree. The vast majority are going to yeah. fall in that category. Yeah. You're going to if you hunt very long, you're going to eventually get cheated in a way. There's nothing you can do about. It. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't happen very often. Not very often. It's a, it's a rare thing. And it just seems like the reason I brought that up is because it seems like anytime somebody – I mean, Old Blue always looks good back here on the creek. You know, when you're when you're just out here, you and Old Blue, it's like, man, I could take that dog to town. I know I could just win. And you've got all these expectations. And then you get there, and instead of saying, Old Blue isn't the dog that I thought it was, you know, I got cheated. Yep. I got cheated. So – that is 100% true. Yep. So, Jerry, what's the plans for the future? What kind of plans you got for the future? You gonna, you going to start cooning out again? Uh, yes, I definitely will. Now, whether <laughs> I whether I compete in another competition hunt, I don't know. But um, I guess it just depends, how number one, how good my dogs get. Number two, if I get bit by the bug making me want to do it again. Yeah. But, um, but I do have a young dog that I'm going to work this season. And uh, – already started working on her some and and i've got a squirrel dog so i plan on spending a lot of woods time in the day and night um between me and brenda we got probably lists of lists of things that need done around the farm that i need to do and um 
I'll probably get some more cows um, and probably do a little bit of traveling, not to hunt, but mm -hmm. regular like vacation traveling and because uh, we haven't done a lot of that. And um, But you found ways. I mean, Brenda, uh, there have been several times when you've been on the road going somewhere and I call you and Brenda would be with you. And oh, yeah. If, and, and I've told other people this. If it wouldn't be for the fact that the Brenda did go with me quite a bit over the last several years. I probably would have would have had to make this decision a long time ago, just because it it uh, it helped ease the pain as far as being away from home that much and traveling that much away from home, and uh, having my wife with me. It, it was it was a blessing. Yeah, yeah, good deal. So, are you going to breed any more litters at Salt Creek Dream Walkers? Uh, that's yet to be determined too, but I. I still have some frozen semen on the old socket dog, so I'll probably be raising some, probably not a lot. You gonna breed her to any breed him to any blue ticks? I might. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well you've I mean we could do a whole episode on, on uh Salt Creek Walkers and the impact that you've had just on breeding trim walkers, Jerry. I hope you get hope you get back into it. You've got a lot of knowledge on that and a lot of good history. So, hope you get back to breeding some of those dogs. Yeah, I'll probably do some, just not to a large extent. Right, right. Well, you got anything else? Nope. I appreciate being a part of this again. And you going to drop off the radar for a while? Fly uh, I'll probably be on the radar, but just, just a blip every once in a while. All right, good deal, man. Well, Jerry, I appreciate you taking time and, and sitting down with us and sharing your story and Appreciate it. Okay. Well, All thank right. you. Well, until next time, Jerry, you follow your hounds, I'll follow mine. Sounds good. And your squirrel dog, follow your squirrel yep. dog, too. All right. <laughs>